Austin, do you remember how long it took me to find a podcast platform for us? Forever. I ended up finding one called Anchor, and I initially chose it just because it was free. But it also has a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. They also distributed for us, so that's why we ended up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all of our other places. And you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Everything you need to make a podcast in just one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. everybody and welcome to will this be on the test i'm maddie i'm austin and we are here to talk about things that we learned but not entirely or learned incorrectly or didn't learn at all in school but we definitely should have yes but first we saw cats oh why'd you have to remind me (laughs) we saw it separately i drove out and saw it with a friend of mine i haven't seen in a few years and I just, I went out to see it on my own because I knew she'd want to talk about it. And I also kind of wanted to see it because it looked like a train wreck. And I was wrong. It was, it was much worse than a train wreck. It would have looked like a train wreck if it was Starlight Express. (laughs) Literally like a train wreck if it was Starlight Express. I will say I need to see this, a movie of Starlight Express made exactly in the same way as this movie with the complete, you know, bodysuit. CG thing happening. I just want to see Starlight Express, but done with the Thomas the Tank Engine t- trains. Which it was originally hoping to be, and then he wasn't allowed to do that because of copyright and oh dear god why reasons. <laughs> so, oh my god, cats, just the creepy human hands was not the worst part. It was a welcome sign of humanity towards the end. It's like, oh god, there's people still in this world. Yeah, it was funny because they talked about how they did that major re-release to fix the hand problem. I have a theory that they released an even earlier version with more hands that were not covered because none of the cats had color on their hands. It was just human hands. Human hands everywhere. I don't think it's spoiling anything to say that McCavity, not McCavity, Mistopheles is a close-up magic cat because if you know cats at all, that's what he is. And he's doing these card tricks with these white boy hands just out in front. I'll just say this. Do we have to worry about spoilers with cats? Everything else, we'll stick to it. But with cats, it's all awful. It's like, I think towards the end of it, like, there was a train cat. And I thought, maybe this train cat will take me away from here. My God. And the train cat scene, they're out dancing on the train rail. And the cats are the same height as the train rail, which is about three inches, maybe six. Those are the world's smallest cats. But at different points, they are the size of, like, trash cans. It was the most confusing thing. Jason Derulo was good. Ian McKellen, as always, was good. Dame Judy Dench looked like she was so mad that she was there. And I understand. She's the only one I understand because she was going to do this musical a long time ago and an injury knocked her out. So I think she was seeing her new chance to do the show that she'd lost out on. And she just looked so defeated. I felt defeated by this movie. It's also worth noting that on top of her fur, she was wearing another fur coat that was clearly cat fur. Oh, God. Oh, can we talk about how got stupid Rebel Wilson removed her own skin to reveal a bad dress, and then put her skin back on over this dress, only to take it off again in a climatic scene. And I know this is going to be an unpopular opinion, but Jennifer Hudson, I love Jennifer Hudson. I also love the song Memory, as any person who's ever listened to any musical theater uh, song does. There are these moments in the song where the notes and the tone that they are at, you can feel them in your very soul. She didn't go anywhere near them and just decided to weep through them instead. And the point where my friend and I are leaning forward with our hands forward going, come on, Jennifer, come on, Jennifer. And when she gets to that part where it's touch me, it's so easy to leave me. We both just flopped back and put our hands over our heads. We were so disappointed. That entire song, it was like, they're building to something. They're building to something and then nothing. It's like Jason from The Good Place said. It's like a DJ that's always building to the bass drop, but never drops the bass. But again, I have to say Jason Derulo. It was like when T-Pain won Masked Singer last year. Nobody knew T-Pain could sing because of all the autotune. Nobody knew Jason Derulo could sing because of all the autotune. And Jason Derulo managed to act without overdoing it, which I cannot say for the 15-minute monologue background people that was at the end of the movie. Serious Orlando Blooming. They were just like, I don't know what to do with my face and body. Yeah, I will say Orlando Bloom in many ways is the best part of the Lord of the Rings series if you want them to be a comedy. (laughs) Which I really want everything to be a comedy. That said, though, 
I left thinking I really want to see this again. Not why? Be- not because it was good, but it's okay. I had the same feeling when I watched when I read the Twilight books because I wanted to understand what just happened to me. No, no, this is okay. You haven't read nearly as much like Lovecraftian things. Man was not meant to know as I have. Cats is something man was not meant to know. You don't want to dig too deep into this mystery. That is the path of madness. Well, we've talked about Tom Hopper before. Hopper or Hooper? I think it's Hooper. At this point, Um, it doesn't matter. We talked about how he did the Les Mis movie because he loved the French Revolution, but it's not set during the French Revolution. If you don't know what we're talking about, go back a few episodes. It's called The June Rebellion. He decided to take away the best part of this musical, which is the makeup. Replace it with CG because he wanted the movements to seem more cat-like. We have four cats. I have never in my life not had a cat for more than like 15 minutes. I have never seen cats' ears or tails move like they moved in this. And also, since when do cats jump in slow motion? Austin can attest that when a cat decides it is hungry in the morning and wants to leap onto your testicles, it does not do it in slow motion. Oh no, it goes in head first. And also, speaking of testicles, can we talk about sexy, sexy Idris Elba? I am so confused because he comes in, he's wearing a jacket and a hat for most of the movie. And then he shows up completely naked. And they had the cat's fur be the same color as Idris Elba's skin. And they gave him Idris Elba's body shape, including these amazing abs. So basically you're seeing Idris Elba running around naked, which would be fine, except he's also a cat. And like total Ken doll. Which makes the the scenes about nut jokes make zero sense. I know. It's like, oh, no, I've been hitting the nuts, but there's nothing there. Well, at least this means that this part of London has a really good trap neuter release program. They weren't, t- they weren't tipping anyone's ears, though. No, they weren't. And that's why they keep getting caught up in things. It's a whole problem. And also, Grizabella, in the show... Her story is that she was this beautiful cat and then she got old and therefore became useless to her community. In this, it was, oh, she took up with McCavity and now nobody wants to deal with her. Which made somehow made cats anti-feminist. Did they slut shame a cat? And there's this scene that if they were humans, they'd be crying, but, you know, cats don't cry. So instead, they had this huge string of snot coming out of Grizabella's nose. Now, if you know cats, runny noses and uh, crusty eyes are signs of herpes. Okay, you know how I feel about bad audience members, but I just couldn't help it. I leaned over and said, that's why they won't hang out with her. She got herpes from the cavity. Other than, like, the weird Idris Elba sexual awakenings so many people are going to have from this movie. Ew. (laughs) Also, I want to just say this. Grizabella's muzzle, it was, like, this kind of, like, gray thing, and it reminded me of Homer Simpson's face. I was got, like, that little, like, stubbly patch around his mouth. It looked like Homer Simpson's mouth. To put this in perspective, on New Year's Eve, we went to a friend's house and we watched Burlesque. If you know Burlesque, it is easily one of... The worst musical movies of all time, despite having the amazing Kristen Bell in it. And Stanley Tucci. We theorized that Kristen Bell was originally given Christina Aguilera's part, and then Christina became available, so they wrote this completely unrelated role for Kristen Bell in this. Because why would you cast someone who can sing like Kristen without actually having them sing? Burlesque was a better movie. Oh god, it actually was. I think if we had seen Cats in a situation where we could have been making fun of it constantly, as I wanted to do in this theater, but didn't because I'm not a monster. Yeah, he had like 25 other people. We only had three. My theater was like full. So many weird people. And one other person when the movie ended went, oh, thank God. So it's like there was one other like me, but everyone else was taking it so seriously around me. Yeah, we had only other three other people in the theater. And we knew because like I said, I hate bad movie theater goers, but we knew. So we went to the back so we could hopefully just whisper about it and not bother them too much. And they didn't say anything to us. Even at the end, I was kind of dreading that they'd turn around and be like, you guys were really rude, but they didn't. You ruined cats. But we moved to the back just in case because it was... <laughs> One of the most bizarre, awful experiences, but I had so much fun. It's like watching The Room, which we do about once a year. Yeah. Also, if there are any kids listening, don't watch The Room until you're at least 25. A room theory that I agree with, Denny is actually a cat. That's true. Denny is actually a cat. Well, guys, we we could go. We could do an entire episode about cats. (laughs) I actually considered telling Austin, you know what? Let's just skip this week and do a review of cats. Oh, I would actually be okay with that. But 
I did a lot of research. Mine is really long. And so I kind of figure I want to get her done. I went second last time, so I'm going first this time. Yay, go ahead. I have no idea what you're doing this week. Yeah, it could have gone one or two ways. So before I get into it, I used a lot of sources. Khan Academy, which is, you know, I always thought it was just math. It's not. Slate, the Washington State government site, because I needed some definitions. History Extra, the Chicago Tribune, Wikipedia, and some quick Google searches just for definitions of words I did not understand. Wow. I'll, I'll define them. But you have the best vocabulary. I, I know. I know I do. But there were words I had never even heard. But it turns out at least one of them is a Lutheran word. <gasps> Those damned Lutherans. Last week, I talked about how the New York Times used the Kitty Genovese tragedy to promote their inexplicable idea that living in urban areas is detrimental to one, one's morals. This week, I'm talking about another instance in which... A small group's opinions on what made people good or bad changed the course of history. While Katie's story had a lasting effect on psychology and education, this one is far more reaching. I'm talking about prohibition today. Oh, good. We went from something horrifying and sad to prohibition now. Which is actually more horrifying than sad than I ever knew. Did, what did you learn about prohibition in school? Prohibition happened. We got to see like photos of really, really fat cops in like trench coats breaking open barrels of beer and then prohibition ended oh my family has a proud tradition of moonleg of moonshining and bootlegging so we absolutely ignored these laws which is interesting and i'll get to that in a minute Ooh. yeah that's about what i learned though that it happened and then it ended and i think i even learned about this when i was in catholic school and they never once talked about you know the immorality that alcohol can supposedly cause and things like that it was just brushed over and it's because we handled it real badly. Oh, oh, I also forgot, because this is Kansas, we learned all about Carrie Nation and take, her taking hatchets to bottles and bars and just being a pain in the ass until people agreed to do things her way. So there were laws against alcohol starting as early as 1657, when Massachusetts made the sale of strong liquor illegal, but only when selling to Native Americans. So everybody could have it except the Native Americans. I mean, they were actively killing them at that time. In 1784, Benjamin Rush, a physician, wrote a treatise called The Inquiry into the Effects of Ardent Spirits Upon the Human Body and Mind, in which he showed that excessive drinking caused injuries to the body and mind and called drunkenness a disease. Now, I didn't, I didn't read the treatise, so I'm assuming he didn't ever use the word alcoholism, but he's not wrong because alcoholism is a disease and it does affect your body and mind. But that resulted in about 200 farmers in Connecticut forming a temperance group in 1789 and more groups followed. Prohibition as we know it started being argued for in the late 1800s, predominantly by religious groups that couldn't themselves drink. People believed that alcohol caused poverty, accidents, ruined families, as well as associated it with immigrants and urban areas. Those damned immigrants and their drinking. Well, this would have been like, oh yeah, all of those Irish stereotypes. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> it's actually the Germans they're more against in this. Oh, oh yeah, those German stereotypes and their drinking. Well, the Germans knew how to make the beer and the Germans therefore were taking the money. <gasps> Women became ardent supporters of prohibition. While men still liked drinking and were the ones who were like, lay off, lady, women saw drinking as detrimental to motherhood, so they stopped drinking when they had kids, and to the happiness of their homes. By 1830, Americans were drinking nearly two bottles of hard alcohol per week, individually. Woo! Which is three times more than people were in 2010. The Alcohol Temperance Society was formed in 1826 and had 1.5 million members in 1835, with women constituting a huge percentage. Estimates go from 35% to over 60% being women. The first law was passed in Maine in 1846. The Prohibition Movement came in to, began shortly after with the Prohibition Party coming into existence in 1869. Although during all of this, it slowed down during the Civil War because obviously how else are you going to survive everybody dying? Groups like the Chris Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Anti-Saloon League came later and began to be open in their fights as well. The Christian Temperance Union actually seemed to kind of have people's best interests at heart. It wasn't a I can't drink so you can't. They believed that alcohol increased violence from women's abusive husbands. So if their husband's already abusive or could be abusive, he will be more so when he's drunk, which is still fairly true. And that children should be educated about the dangers of drinking. Also true. 
I will never say never teach kids about the dangers of drinking or drinking and driving or smoking. Do all of those things. Just make sure you're doing it in a way that won't make them think, I'm going to try that like the D.A.R.E. program did for some. (laughs) Kansas was the first state to make a constitutional law against alcohol consumption of any sort in 1881. Carrie Nation, a radical member of the temperance movement and self-described bulldog running along at the feet of Jesus barking at what he doesn't like, would enter bars and saloons, (laughs) yell at customers, and break bottles with a hatchet. Okay, she's nuts, but respect. Okay, I can see you doing that, like, once you hit a certain age. It's like, I'm just going to stop walking around with a hatchet, breaking up things I don't like. I walk into a movie theater that's showing cats just go after the screen. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like Lillian from Kimmy Schmidt. There were cases filed in opposition, but overall in Kansas, they considered drinking to be a moral issue. Now, I'm curious to know how this affected the state's finances, because think how much grain is grown here. We are the nation's breadbasket. We're not really... But like, I didn't dig too deep into Kansas because this is already going to go long. But I'm curious to know how much of that grain was used for alcohol production. How did this affect the state's overall finances? Though women were a major factor in prohibition, studies have shown that the majority of the political forces acting for prohibition were ethno-religious, which I had to look up. Ethno-religious groups are ethnic groups unified not just by ancestry or religion, but a combination of both. The largest ethno-religion today is Hinduism, but they are not a part of this. That's just an interesting fact. These are all piestic religious groups, or piestic, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Piestic, piestic, meaning a Lutheran movement with a focus on individual piety and a living a very focused Christian life. Oh, so they're they're the they're what's wrong with America? <laughs> Denominations included Methodists, Northern and Southern Baptists, New School Presbyterians, Disciples of Christ, Congregationalists, Quakers, and Scandinavian Lutherans. Okay, are there non-Scandinavian Lutherans at this point in time, at least? Germans, German Lutherans. Okay, that makes sense. But yeah, it was it was your people who were one of the major players in this, which is why it's funny what you said earlier. And this is also funny because before America had prohibition, Sweden had prohibition, but for coffee, for many of the same reasons, and it failed and just burned out of control and there was a coffee smuggling. It was great. They already tried this and it didn't work. To be clear, I have no problem with Lutherans. It's kind of a running joke between us because I was raised Catholic, he was raised Lutheran, and we are supposed to hate each other. But neither one of us has a problem with either uh, either other religion. It's just, eh, live your life. To a lesser extent, there was a Catholic Total Abstinence Union of America, and to an even lesser extent, the Latter-day Saints. You know, Latter-day Saints gets a bad rap, but... They are a group that technically forbids alcohol. And I say technically because shit happens. And I couldn't find anything that says, oh, you had a beer, you're excommunicated. Honestly, most LDS people I've met have been lovely and don't push their beliefs on you. But they weren't a major player. And spoiler alert, they were actually the final state, not the final state, but the 36th state to get the two-thirds majority to repeal prohibition. So Utah was in on that early. By 1916, 26 states had independently passed prohibition laws, which was over half the states at the time. Arguments grew stronger when we entered World War I in 1917, saying we needed to conserve grain. But this was also, we also need to control those Germans who are running all of the breweries. (laughs) The Volstead Act was created to carry out the 18th Amendment. It was called this because of Andrew Volstead, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee who just managed the whole thing. The amendment initially had no definition for intoxicating liquors or provided any penalties for it, which makes me think about the Kansas City plan to make all buses free. Unlike Prohibition, it's a great idea, but they don't have anything in there about how they're going to do it. They just said, we're going to do it. And so it's not technically doable. Come on, guys. President Woodrow Wilson actually vetoed the bill, which we never learned in school. Woodrow Wilson said no, largely because of wartime prohibition. And I don't know what that means. and I didn't bother to look it up. But the veto was overridden by the House that day, excuse me, and by the Senate the next day because they can override things the president says and does. The 18th Amendment was clarified and ultimately prevented the manufacture, sale, or transportation of alcohol that was more than 0.5% alcohol, unless it was for medicine, industry, or religious purposes. So if you went to a church that did the weekly sacraments, you could still have your wine for that. That was something I was actually wondering about. Those who had been for prohibition even had a problem with the low amount that was set into place. Even they thought it was an unreasonably low amount. Likely, my this is my theory, because it meant you couldn't even have a drink of wine in your own home during a celebration or part of some kind of ceremony. You could have it. It was actually not illegal to drink it. It was just illegal to make it, 
or to sell it, not it says sale, not purchase, and transport it. So really, I guess once you buy it, you can't really take it anywhere. You just got to drink your, I don't know. They probably were more specific than that. I don't know. I mean, we weren't specific about what impeachment is, so. If you already had alcohol in your home, you could not be stopped from drinking it. So people stockpiled the hell out of it before prohibition took place. Both houses of Congress agreed to the amendment in December, 1917. It was ratified by two thirds on January 16th, 1919, and started on January 17th, 1920. But there's a loophole. Doctors could prescribe it. Yes. And buy it for, quote, laboratory use. Also, sacramental wine sales went way up. I am shocked to learn that. One of the arguments for prohibition was that it would lower crime, but it actually created new crimes. Because we, as humans, are innovative. And when, like, you know, Congress closes a door, organized crime opens a window. Previously, there had been no need for bootlegging. I'm sure people were still moonshiners because that's actually still legal today. You can make your own alcohol. It doesn't matter. Oh, my, but there was no... you should be careful with that because it can kill you. <laughs> yes. Make good choices. Learn what you're doing. The internet's there. So now everybody from the average Joe to the literal mob started bootlegging. Where there had been rivalry between gangs before, and I'm talking like mobster gangs, this escalated to huge amounts of violence. And there were over 500 murders related to this nationwide between 1927 and 1930. The Chicago Crime Commission claims that there were 729 murders in Chicago between 1919 and 1933, but they've been discredited. Though the government created the Federal Bureau of Prohibition with about 3,000 agents, they were spread thin because they had to both be at the borders to prevent smuggling and work across the continent. To give a comparison, there are 19,000 border patrol agents now. So we've got 19,000 people just there to patrol border. I mean, they do work across the continent. That's a whole other thing. But there were only 3,000 for this. Police forces surprisingly didn't magically grow in numbers either. And obviously, the less somebody was paid for their enforcement duties, the easier they were to agree to be paid off. There were claims that half the police officers in Chicago were being paid, and only 17 people in New York City were convicted of any crime relating to this, even though 7,000 were arrested. <laughs> because it wasn't just the officers and other law enforcement, it was the judges and the government officials being paid off as well. Many states didn't allow local police to even bother investigating cases of amendment violations. Think of it like sanctuary cities today, where it's just, just leave it alone. Just leave it alone. Also, side note, I learned when I was researching this that sanctuary city is not a legal term. Really? It's, so so that stupid Missouri law banning sanctuary cities is just a stupid Missouri law? It's a colloquialism. You couldn't mention them under the Comics Code Authority. Damn you, Missouri! Places that did enforce them experienced rising distrust in law enforcement. There, however, were some well-known, now, probably not then, officers who did enforce these laws. Mo Smith and Izzy Einstein, and Izzy Einstein is male, which is important here in a second, were New York officers who made nearly 5,000 arrests. Note that New York had 7,000 arrests. So they made 5,000 of them. <laughs> in just five years, via the use of disguises. What? And I am talking... Disney show I Love Lucy type of disguises. Oh my god, I need to look these up. There is an amazing one that I'll post on our Instagram or somewhere on social where Mo is wearing a big beard and a hat and Izzy is dressed up as his wife in a full fur coat and a 1920s fancy hat. Are you sure this is not a fictional thing? These were people that- I have photos. Wow! And then, of course, Elliot Ness, who used a hand-picked group called the Untouchables that was real, whose actions ultimately led to the arrest of Al Capone. Let's talk about Al Capone for a second. He was easily one of the biggest Prohibition-era ringleaders, earning around $60 million during that time, inclusive of his gambling and prostitution businesses. How much is that in modern dollars? I think it would cover the national debt. Okay. I have no idea. I didn't look it up. He actually did many of the killings himself. His group even determined a mayoral election in Cicero, Illinois, by having his men shoot up the current mayor's competitor's office. He also went after a Democratic challenger for city clerk, pistol whipping him in front of his wife and taking down anybody who tried to defend him while uh, by wearing brass knuckles. They also positioned gangsters outside of voting areas. And if they didn't answer correctly about who they were voting for, at best, they were threatened and sent home. So he single-handedly decided an election. <laughs> The whole story is long and crazy. I highly recommend you look it up, but that's not my point today. Bars and saloons were, of course, shut down. They were replaced by speakeasies and blind pigs. This is what Austin hates. He hates this jazz era, but this is fascinating. Wait, no, no, no. What, what's a blind pig? Same thing as a speakeasy. Okay. Also, 
why are speakeasies coming back? This is legal, but there's like all these little secret underground speakeasies you can go to if you know a password and someone gives you a Facebook invite. It gives you a really good thing for the gram. That's all about the gram. They didn't even have the gram. So ultimately, there were about 200,000 of these illegal bars. People also made their own alcohol, such as moonshine, bathtub gin, and other homebrews. Homebrewing, by the way, is still legal in all 50 states, thanks to Jimmy Carter, though individual states have the right to ban it. None have since 2013. Good. Jimmy Carter, like... He did some interesting stuff. Like, people made fun of him for being so, like, moral and, like, Jimmy Carter. But then he's like, yeah, you can brew in your own house. That's, it's not my place to judge you for this. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that unless you go out and drive drunk, it's largely a victimless crime. Speaking of increasing crime, December 24th, 1926, a man showed up into, in an emergency room claiming he was being chased by Santa Claus wielding a baseball bat. He continued to scream this while medical staff were trying to treat him. There's obviously no Santa there. Doctors understandably thought he just had alcohol poisoning and was drunk and confused and Some people, I guess, do hallucinate with alcohol poisoning, although it's not a common symptom. He died before they could figure out that he wasn't poisoned by alcohol. The alcohol itself was poisoned. What? It'd be rational to think he was poisoned by uh, a prohibition group who was mad that people were drinking. It'd be reasonable to think that he had someone who didn't like him. It'd be reasonable to think that he had purposefully drunk something in in a suicide attempt and had just gotten so confused that he forgot. I think it was the mob. Was it the mob? No. None of these things happened. Alcohol doesn't only exist in drinkable form even today. There are industrial alcohols, which are extremely high proof and used for sanitizing, other kinds of cleaning, medicine, flavoring, and even in everyday cosmetics. Like your hand lotion has industrial alcohols in it. Yeah, there's like alcohol. It's like it's a it's a type of organic chemical that just means it's got a OH sticking off to the side. There's lots of alcohols. So you also now might be thinking that this guy's just a dumbass who opened his medicine cabinet and drank rubbing alcohol thinking it'd be fine. Also not true. Other than illegally procuring alcohol, this man didn't do anything wrong. The people who sold him the alcohol other than illegally selling it didn't do anything wrong. Bootleggers got hold of industrial alcohols and altered them to make them drinkable. I'll get more on that in a second. However, they did not cause this man's death. They didn't screw it up. This was a new type of criminal that ultimately led not just to this man's death, but to a total of about 10,000 people. What? 10,000 people people. killed by poisoned alcohol. During this period of only seven years, the United States government did this. (gasps) So... So one guy decides to poison some Tylenol, and there's all of these weird safety caps I've got to deal with, but the U.S. government poisoned some alcohol, and I don't hear about it until I'm 35? 34. (laughs) Yeah. The U.S. government poisoned alcohol, and and it resulted in the deaths of approximately 10,000 people. They were really pissed off about the bootlegging. This was on purpose. I said I'd get back to the bootleggers and and their way of handling alcohol, and this is important before I get back to what the government's doing. In 1906, denaturing was required in all industrial alcohol because they wanted to make it undrinkable because it was already dangerous to drink. Mm -hmm. So in order to make it so that you could not and would not want to drink it, they denatured it. There were over 70 denaturing options by the 1920s from things that just made it taste really bad to full-blown poisons. In theory, all industrial alcohol is denatured and therefore undrinkable, and that continues to today. Obviously, the people who figure this stuff out are chemists. The government was paying chemists to denature alcohol, and then bootleggers paid them to renature it. Oh yeah, I mean, the alcohol you want is just the ethyl alcohol, which you can you can just do that. They made significantly more money from the bootleggers, so they joined the criminal faction to remove the denaturing products from the alcohol because everyone likes money, and let's be honest, there is no way the upcoming depression was a total shock. It's not like one day Wall Street fell, everybody was like, what happened? So in response to the chemists going back and renaturing the alcohol, the government started putting kerosene, gasoline, acetone, methyl, and a whole bunch of other poisons in alcohol. So it's already denatured. It shouldn't be drinkable, but it shouldn't kill you. Now they're making it so it will kill you. Methyl alcohol is the stuff that makes you go bad, blind from bad moonshine. And I don't know how all the science works, of course, but basically it either can't be totally removed or they didn't know it was in there, so they didn't remove it. I'm not sure which one it was. I think it's, it theoretically can be, I've, it's been a long time since I've done any chemistry stuff. I think with some of that stuff, it can kind of be removed, but the difficulty of removing it, like just 
negates any possible profit you can make on it. So because of this, 10,000 people died. And I'm just going to keep saying that because it's baffling to me. 10,000 people 10, died. When people started realizing what was happening, the government said that they had hoped that the knowledge would that it could be dangerous would be enough to scare people away. And they never intended to kill anyone. But how would the knowledge that they could be poisoned get out there unless people were getting poisoned and dying? So by 1933, approximately 10,000 people had died. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> the chief medical examiner of New York City, Charles Norris, referred to it as, quote, a national experiment in extermination. And public health officials in general expressed their horror. Norris continued, The government knows it is not stopping drinking by putting alcohol poison in the alcohol, yet it continues its poisoning processes, heedless of the fact that people determined to drink are daily absorbing that poison. Knowing this to be true, the United States government must be charged with the moral responsibility for the deaths that poisoned liquor causes, though it cannot be legally held responsible. He had his department issue warnings that nearly all alcohol in New York City was poisoned and ordered that any confiscated whiskey be tested. That is how they found out exactly what poisons were being used. He also pointed out that, like many laws today, this targeted poor people. Rich people could afford to get the nicer smuggled in stuff. Poor people who were determined to drink for whatever reason, which doesn't mean you deserve the death penalty, especially not a horrible, painful one, couldn't afford that. The irony here is that while people were not happy about the poisoning, they also weren't happy with politicians who spoke out against it. They began to assume that those people were against it not because they were mad that people were being killed, which I'm sure some of them really were, but that they themselves were losing money from the deals they had made with the bootleggers. Oh, God. And again, I'm sure that's true for some of them as well. Now, we can say all we want that they were breaking the law and that this ultimately makes it all their fault. The Omaha Bee even asked, must Uncle Sam guarantee the safe guarantee safety first for souses? But that's the equivalent of saying that if someone steals a candy bar, which is something they don't need but they want, kind of like alcohol, that they deserve to die in a horribly painful way. Think of it that way before you say these people deserved it. Also remember that kids get hold of alcohol all the time. I couldn't find any individual statistics on that, but kids get hold of alcohol. There were kids who died. Despite all of this, you know, all the poisons, all the illegal stuff that comes with purchasing alcohol, alcoholism rose by more than 300% during the 20s. Wow. Mm-hmm. So prohibition tripled alcoholism. Additionally, prohibition eliminated the brewing industry, which lost a huge number of jobs. $11 billion in taxes were lost, and it cost $300 million to enforce this. Wonder what helped bring the depression about. Yeah, this this wasn't helpful for that. Yeah, all these unemployed people, all these taxes gone. All of these unemployed people who just decided, I'm just going to start drinking. So were there positives? Hard liquor sales dropped by 50%, beer and other drinks dropped by 33%, which led to fewer people dying from cirrhosis of the liver. Great. Except 10,000 people were killed by being poisoned. And they also died from alcohol poisoning because if you don't know where your next drink is coming from, you're going to binge it. So why did it end? Well, it was considered a failure. The Commission on Law Observance and Enforcement noted in 1931 that there was obvious and widespread police and political corruption caused by the amendment. Arrests for public drunkenness also rose after the initial fall in it. Interestingly, a big part of the reason it was repealed was that the Women's Organization for National Prohibition Reform said that not allowing alcohol actually promoted immorality. Just as those had who the women who had argued against it said that alcohol promoted immorality. Well, now in order to make some money, people who'd been laid off from the grain, from the you know brewing industry, where were they going to go? Into illegal activity. So they're not wrong here. They actually had evidence that because of the underground syndicate, politicians either tacitly or were paid off to ignore all of the laws being broken, and it generally increased disrespect for the law. So the women were saying. More people are entering criminal activity out of necessity, and more people have decided that the law is meaningless in general. So immorality is increasing because of prohibition. So women were a major part of causing it and taking it away. Good job, ladies. Oh, and the second part. Second part. More importantly, though, depression was starting and they could tax the hell out of alcohol. In fact, newly elected president FDR in 1932 said, what America needs now is a drink. Yeah. Repealing the whole thing was kind of confusing. In 1933, when opposition was overwhelming, Congress passed the Cullen-Harrison Act, which made 3-2 beer illegal, which is 
beer containing 3.2% alcohol by weight, as well as wines with a similar alcohol content, despite the amendment with 0.5% still being in effect. So this is a law passed by Congress that goes against an amendment that was passed by Congress so without the, being an amendment itself. So the Supreme Court uh, promptly shut that down, right? No. Oh. The Blaine Act was the name of the amendment proposal, and on December 5th, 1933, Utah became the 36th state, which was the two-thirds majority needed, to ratify the 21st Amendment, and prohibition ended. After that amendment, alcohol became a state issue. Some of them did choose to stay dry, with Mississippi being the last one to become wet in 1966. (laughs) Though there are still cities or counties that have bans. There's a great map on Wikipedia where it shows dry, wet, and mixed counties. And the majority of states are wet, with a good number being mixed and a few counties being totally dry. It has been noted that dry cities and counties face a loss of tax revenue, not just because they don't have taxes on alcohol, but because people cross lines to get alcohol, so they'll just buy other things there too. So for instance, if you're crossing from Kansas to Missouri, you go to Trader Joe's, you buy some wine, you're going to buy your groceries there too. And oh, there's a gas station here. Gas is cheaper in Missouri than Kansas. I'm going to fill up. And then, hey, there's that donut shop that's right there. Let's get some donuts. They do have really good donuts. Great donuts. The whole state of Missouri, not just the one donut place we're making. Uh, Missouri, you're awful, but the donuts are okay. It has been shown that dry and mixed counties in Kentucky have a higher number of meth labs. Woohoo! Drunk driving statistics. In dry Kentucky counties, alcohol-related drunk driving incidents are the, more or less the same percentage-wise in dry and wet counties. In Texas, dry counties see three times the number of alcohol-related car accidents than wet counties. And it is not uncommon for liquor stores or stores that sell alcohol to be right on the border. And so that is the story of Prohibition, how crazy it all started, the horrible things that happened during it, and the lingering effects it has today. Yay! Wow, I'm glad they learned their lesson about how this prohibition wasn't working with alcohol 70 years ago. If only this 40-year war on drugs could end in a similar way. I think the war on drugs is technically over. Drugs won, kids. <laughs> drugs won. Drugs actually did win, and it's it's not great, guys. Don't don't do meth. Don't, don't do meth. Don't do meth. Like, okay, like, don't do meth. Like, avoid anything that's based in opium. And I'll just say it, like, don't do club drugs, because, I mean... They're douchey. Do you want to be that douche? No, no, you don't. And you also never know what anything's laced with. Like, don't don't make stupid decisions. But also, like, dare taught kids how to use drugs. So. Yeah. It's like, oh my god, like, step by step on how to shoot up heroin was a literal thing that I saw in a presentation in the sixth grade. Anyway, you ready for your questions? I'm ready for my questions. Will this be on the test? Will the fact that the earliest liquor laws were only imposed against Native Americans be on the test? No. Will the fact that there was so much corruption that it directly influenced the need for the 21st Amendment be on the test? Yes, I'm going to say that's going to be on there. It's like, yeah, this really failed and here's why. (laughs) I'd hope so. Will the fact that women were major players in both Prohibition and its repeal be on the test? Yes. Will the fact that the government knowingly poisoned and killed about 10,000 people be on the test? No, because you have to trust the government. And will the fact that the two most prolific New York police officers in terms of alcohol arrests did so by wearing I Love Lucy-esque costumes be on the test? I hope so, just because I want that picture in textbooks. I really think that that would be awesome. That's a really great hook. That's something that will draw kids in. Yeah, that's great. Except I'm sure like someone in Texas is like, oh my god, they're trans! And then they'll go crazy. So that is prohibition. That is a long, in-depth thing that I didn't learn much about in school other than when we had to, like, name the different amendments by number. Al Capone was involved. Yes. So what I researched was one of the world's most famous paintings. You've seen it. You know all about it. Is the pride of France. Is it a banana attached to a wall with duct tape? No, it's an actual masterpiece. It's the Mona Lisa. Okay. Yeah, it's famous. It's in the Louvre. It was painted by Da Wild, Da Crazy, Da Vinci. I liked him a lot in Ever After. Funny you should mention Ever After, because they think he painted it some time between 1503 and 1517. It's actually not that big. It's only 21 inches by 30 inches. Yeah, I've heard you go to the Louvre and you actually leave kind of disappointed, both by the crowds and the size, because you never actually get to see it. You're better off looking in a textbook. I'm going to get into that. But this is an important thing. It was painted on 
poplar wooden planks. It's not a canvas. Drew Barrymore lied to you in Ever After, because when he unrolled that canvas, it was the Mona Lisa, and it was never on a canvas. Next, you're going to be telling me that she's not a zombie who was attacked by a spider ball. I've got some more bad news for you. That show's been canceled. That is the worst. Okay, not the worst decision Netflix has made, because that was one day at a time. It's the second worst decision Netflix has made. Yeah, okay. Canceling one day at a time and canceling Santa Clarita Diet. It's like, come on, those were great. We loved them. And also another thing that you might not have known about the Mona Lisa, we know who she is. We do? Yeah. Her name is Lisa Gherardini. She was the wife of Francisco Giocondo. And we also know why she's smiling. Because he chose to paint her that way? Because it's a pun. It's a pun. Yes. Giocondo is similar to a Latin word, lucanda, meaning happy or smiling. And this is a common thing that painters would do with like nobility subjects. They would include like a juniper tree or something like that represents their family crest or their family name or something their family does in the painting. This is what they did. They included her smile for this feeling of happiness as a pun on the family name. And see, the thing is for me, it doesn't look like a happy smile. It's a, I got something on you smile. Yeah, she's got, it's a very intriguing smile. And it's the reason why it was considered, it is considered one of the masterpieces of the Renaissance era. But it really, it really wasn't that famous for a while. Also, this is one of the earliest examples of a painting where the background is completely imagined. He just made up the background. Did he do the same thing with her smile? Because there's no way she sat there smiling for years. They think it was from some initial sketches and he embellished it a lot, which again, common with paintings because you want your wealthy patrons to think you're good. And if you make them look good, they'll like you more, even if they're ugly as all get out. I'm now imagining that she originally did a big toothy grin, but she had all kinds of messed up teeth. So he's like, "Mm, let's make this a mysterious smirk. (laughs) Mysterious smirk. This portrait did influence portraits in the Florence area for decades. So this was an important work, even in its time, just not the universal phenomenon it is now. As also, this is probably not the only Mona Lisa he did. I do remember hearing about that. Is it, okay, you might be getting to this. Is it painted over something else? Maybe. They went back and forth on, like, there's another painting under it, but it might just be revisions to the original painting. See, that's what always made the most sense to me. It's like, you can't, I can't imagine that the first go is perfect. I mean, you no. you paint and the first mm-hmm. go is never perfect. And It's never perfect. Sometimes there's things I like, sometimes things I don't. Sometimes I just completely give up. And it's like with paintings, you can just like paint over it and start again. They think he'd been working on it for many years from sketches. He might have done other similar paintings. And there's even a belief that there's a second one that's out there somewhere that's similar, but we don't know for sure. I really hope that one day it shows up on like one of those storage wars or hoarders kind of shows. It's just in somebody's like storage area and they have no idea. (laughs) That would be hilarious. He kept working on it for a while and then he kept working on it when he moved to France, which is when King Francis I of France bought it in 1518. Isn't his name like basically King France of France? Yep, his name is King France of France. He's the first King France of France. (laughs) France of France. France of France. It sat in the Palace of Fortainebleau and it was in the bathroom. I love that. It would be in this bathroom for hundreds of years. Dude, how many duty parasites are in there? I have no idea. They did do a very thorough cleaning of it in 1840. Also, what a cool job and probably the most intimidating job other than like surgeon. I love like watching, you can go on YouTube and watch people like restoring artwork. The precision and delicacy in which they're doing this stuff, it's intimidating. And then you see like the finished product and it's like, holy crap, that's amazing. Except for that one lady who uh, restored that fresco of Jesus. That was real bad. It sat there for hundreds of years until uh, Louis XIV moved it to Versailles, where it was not in the bathroom this time. But I also learned something really cool about Versailles doing this. Versailles didn't really have bathrooms, so people would just go shit in the corner. Like in Hogwarts early on exactly when they took like, it away. Except they'd also go out poop in the gardens. Versailles stank because it was full of human excrement. Wasn't that true of like a lot of probably early America too? That's because true. where that's, else are you going to put it? That's true of human history until like 100 years ago. Thank you inventors of, we should look up who invented like plumbing. Plumbing. I know the Romans had like rudimentary plumbing, oh, and yeah. I'm sure I'm sure Pliny the Elder will tell us all about plumbing. And he does know about humans' internal plumbing. Yeah. Oh, so much about it. Pliny, tell us all about plumbing, please. And the, of course, they also had um, orange trees to mask the smell inside, and the king demanded weekly cleanings. Good. Weekly cleanings. 
I mean, that's really good for them, especially because they didn't understand how diseases spread. So Weekly is really impressive. Well, I mean, he's the king of France. He can do whatever he wants. Also, I noted that, so I guess it was actually still in the bathroom, really, if it was in the Versailles. Now I'm wondering, France still has a royal family or do they not? Oh, no. Um, remember that f- whole French Revolution that happened where they all died? I mean, there's been 20 of those and they kept coming back. Yeah. I don't know. There might be like French nobility out there somewhere, but I don't know. I haven't looked into it ever. All of our French listeners, please tell us. Actually, I've, I looked at our listener stats. We don't have any in France. We had one in Iran. Cool. Yeah. Oh, I'm very sorry about some recent events, listener in Iran. I hope everything's okay. <laughs> yeah. We we aren't, well, Austin and I are not trying to start World War I, World War 27, I think. We've been ha- secretly having yeah. them forever. <sighs> Oof. So- In 1797, it was moved to the Louvre after the French Revolution, and it's mostly stayed there. It's been moved a few times, like Napoleon had it in his bedroom for a while. It was moved during a few different wars. It's been on tour a few times, like Jackie Kennedy Onassis requested that they bring it to America, and they did. So they brought it to America because Jackie Kennedy asked real nice. Jackie Kennedy was able to get people to do so much for her just because she asked real nice. Of course, being beautiful and smart will help with those things, so... Yep. For a long time, it was not widely known. In 1860, a bunch of, like, French smarty pantses, art historians, proclaimed it was one of the masterpieces of the Renaissance. And it was very famous within, like, the art community, but not very well known outside of it. It was in the Louvre, but it was not one of, like, the big pieces in the Louvre that everyone go to see. It wasn't even one of like the major works in the Renaissance wing. It was just there. It was a Da Vinci. You could go see it. It was beautiful, but it wasn't the phenomenon. That changed in 1911 when it was stolen. It's the world's most famous art heist. And are you ready to hear the elaborate heist they pulled off to get this out of there? Did it involve a man with a beard with a beard and a woman dress, a man dressed as a woman in oh, a fur no. coat? No, this is so much more than that. Damn. Come on, Mo and Izzy, get it together. Three men hid in a closet until the museum closed. Then once it closed, they got out of the closet, took it out of its case and frame, covered it with a blanket, and ran to a train station. Too bad it wasn't like Night at the Museum where everything came alive and fought. Maybe that's why they had to run so fast. Maybe. It took them 28 hours to notice that the painting was missing. (laughs) It was very small. I mean, it's not that big of a painting. It wasn't really that well known. The only reason they they noticed that quickly was because there was a still life artist who was coming in to paint his own copies of stuff in the Louvre. Mm -hmm. Because you could still do that. Oh, no, you can still do that now. Really? Because I assume you get trampled to death by tourists. Oh, I don't know about in the Louvre. I'm just talking about art museums in general. Yeah. He noticed it was gone and he was mad because he was painting his still life. And he like, was like, this needs to be here because he was a fussy, fussy artist. So he originally assumed it had just been taken up to the roof because they've been for photography because they're taking photographs of these artworks. And, you know, photography wasn't that great in 1911. So they wanted a good light. So they take the masterpieces up onto the roof, take their pictures, then take them back down. Yeah, that's before they knew the damaged sunlight and stuff could do. So he goes up and he starts bugging the guards to go talk to the photographers and ask them when they're going to be done so he can finish his painting. So the guard finally goes up there and he comes back down and is like, the photographers don't have it. And then all hell broke loose. It became an overnight sensation. It was in newspapers all over the world. And this is my favorite headline from them. 60 detectives seek stolen Mona Lisa. French public indignant. Wait, are they indignant that they are searching for it or that it is missing? Because that, that, grammatically, that says that they're mad that the cops are going to find it. Yes. And in my notes, it's like, please make your jokes now. (laughs) Does it actually say that? Oh, my God. See, I know you. I'm in your head. But so, yeah, the French public were indignant. And also a painting was stolen. I loved it. They were talking about like who the French public were blaming for this. First, they were blaming American millionaires like J.P. Morgan that they were trying to buy the legacy of France. Side note, if you're ever in New York, go to the Morgan Library. It's amazing. And he didn't steal it, by the way. No. He, nor did he commission their theft as he was accused. They also investigated Pablo Picasso because he was a foreigner and an artist. And so they thought, yeah, it must be him. They also thought the Kaiser had stolen it. The king of Germany, because this was just before World War One, and France and Germany weren't really buds. So they thought it was the Kaiser, like, you know, just fucking with them. It wasn't. The Louvre actually closed for a week so they could investigate this. And when it reopened, the public flocked 
to see the empty spot on the wall where the Mona Lisa was. Franz Kafka even went there to see the empty empty spot. Didn't you mention Kafka-esque nightmares last week? I did. See, it's all coming together. All history is connected, if you can believe it. Funny story. You know how I have two topics I go back to constantly? One's the Jazz Age, and apparently the other one is France, so... See, I need to get out of doing American history, but it scares me because I literally... I took a world geography class in... And I did take a world history class in high school. And the world history class was amazing. But when you cover all of world history, you don't get deeply into stuff. No. And so I don't even know where to start. So, hey, listeners, we are definitely open to suggestions. If there's something you want to hear us get lots of facts wrong about, like send us a message on any of our social medias. Yep. So are ready to hear about the thieves now? I am. So the thieves were Vincenzo and Michelle Lanacotti and... Another Vincenzo, but this was Vincenzo Perogi. Perogati? I'm really bad at Italian names. Perogia. These were three Italian handymen, and they had installed the case that the Mona Lisa was in. That's so cool! But the problem is, it got really famous really fast, and it got too hot to sell. And they weren't complete idiots. Vincenzo hid it in the bottom of his trunk in his boarding house in Paris, and he kept it hidden for 28 months. Wait, didn't it take also 28 hours for them to realize it was missing? Yeah. Everything's connected. He tried to sell it, and he got caught. He pled guilty and received a sentence of eight months in prison. Pleading guilty was a very smart move on his part. Mm -hmm. It's so funny. He claimed that he was actually really an Italian patriot and was trying to get this painting that Napoleon stole from Italy. Napoleon didn't sell it. It it has been in France basically its entire existence. It was never stolen by Napoleon. And he's trying to return it to Italy for Italy's culture. So he was lauded as a big Italian patriot. But it didn't last very long because shortly after his trial, World War I started. So everyone kind of forgot it about a little bit. Kind of like how we forgot about Prohibition during Civil War. They were like, yeah, "Yeah, we were going to do that, but now everybody's dying. So how else are we going to get through this? Also, people made lots of forgeries of the Mona Lisa during this time, mostly for the purpose of selling them to rich Americans. There is one painter who actually made six. You know, I bet those forgeries are also worth a lot of money. I mean, they are historical. I mean, I'd like to have one, but I'm not an eccentric billionaire yet. I can make one for you. It'll be excellent with my amazing drawing skills. It will look nothing like that Jesus face. Make me a Mona Lisa while I read the next part of this. So obviously security was improved ever so slightly, but there have been some other close calls with the Mona Lisa because it got real famous. A man claimed that he was in love with it and tried to cut it with a razor. They installed some glass in front of it after that. A man threw a rock at it and broke the glass. It actually dislodged a little bit of pigment from it. So they installed bulletproof glass after that. While it was in the Tokyo Art Museum, a patron sprayed it with red paint as a protest to the lack of handicapped accessible entrances to this museum. I don't hate that reason. Yeah, good protest. It wasn't damaged because it was in a glass case. And then a lady threw a gift shop mug at it because she was mad she had been denied her citizenship to France. It was fine because it just bounced off the bulletproof glass. So now... The Mona Lisa actually in 2019 got its own room. There is a one to two hour queue just to see the Mona Lisa. You get to see it for 10 to 30 seconds. Yep. And you see it from a distance of nine feet away. Also, you are able to book viewings ahead of time. If you do not, you are not guaranteed to be able to see the Mona Lisa if you go there. Roughly 30,000 visitors a day go to the Louvre. And many of them solely for the purpose of seeing the Mona Lisa. It is a very underwhelming experience. And it has basically turned the Louvre into total chaos all the time because everyone in Paris wants to go see the Mona Lisa. Also, another note, I learned about Paris syndrome. It is a syndrome mainly affects Japanese tourists. Oh, I know exactly what this is. Yeah, they go into extreme shock when they arrive in Paris and it is not what they expected because they go into it with these views for these fashion magazines in which everyone is like super skinny. They're walking around in the designer clothes and it's beautiful and it's not dirty and everyone's gorgeous. And they get there and it is just another city. It's crowded and it's not what they expected. The embassy and the like consulates there actually have people on staff to help people suffering from Paris syndrome. It's even recognized by the DSM. Yeah, I've heard about this. And it's, I mean, it's not exclusive to Japanese tourists and it's not exclusive to Paris, but it is predominantly all of that. Yeah. It's also related to Jerusalem syndrome in which people get to the Holy Land and realize it's just another city. Is there Plymouth Rock syndrome when you get to it and realize it's just a rock with a tiny fence around it? 
I, I bet there is. I'm sure someone has just lost it at the Plymouth Rock thing. So that is Mona Lisa, the masterwork that got real famous because it got stolen and basically ruined the Louvre for everyone. Thanks, thieves. Yeah, thanks a lot. Although, if I were to ever go to Paris, the Louvre would not be on the top of my list of things to see because of the crowds. I'm, yeah. I'm not an art museum person in the first oh, place, I... but I will go to them. I've been to the Met, which was fine. I loved the Egypt section. And there was a photography exhibit that a guy took a microscope slide over every little inch of his body and took a photo of it. So obviously I went and looked for all the dirty bits. Uh, <laughs> so that was kind of interesting. But some of it, I'm like, this looks like what I made in high school photography class. Not that one, obviously. <laughs> but like some of the, I do this project photography where we took a picture, then we had to color parts of it in with a colored pencil. I'm like, that's I took that picture. Oh, God. <laughs> high school photography. So many black and white photos of chain link fences. Did I ever tell you that I went into the cordoned off, half torn down elementary school and did, and did that? No, but that sounds like a you thing. Yeah, it's like... I was, like I mentioned earlier, the most straight-edge kid on the face of the earth, but it was the most interesting thing nearby. So my best friend and I put on our sneakers, and we didn't break in because there was nothing to break through. We just walked in and climbed over the rubble and took pictures inside. I still have those somewhere, I think. (laughs) Oh my god. So that was the Mona Lisa. I drew you the Mona Lisa like you asked. Okay. Oh, I want to see it. Beautiful. It's a masterpiece. I will hang that on the fridge. Do you see what I wrote at the top? Mona Lisa, grade 10. 2020. Because it looks like a school photo. She's very uncomfortable. Yep. she got the smirk, though. You she's got-, got the smirk and the lines across it are because I remember the painting being very dark. So yep. I wanted to get the idea. I drew it with a mechanical pencil. I'm the world's best artist. I will put this on Instagram. Yeah, put that on Instagram. Then we're putting it on the fridge. We don't have a fridge that can use magnets. We have tape. I have literally been looking at fridges online just because I want one that has magnets. I'm using the excuse that our freezer door doesn't stay closed all the time. That's a good excuse. They're way cheaper than I thought. Yeah. They're like well rated for $800, which I mean, it's not like we've got $800 lying around, but if you want to send us $800 so I can have a magnet fridge so I can draw pictures during all of our things. Or even better, send us a fridge. I would just love to come home and there's just a refrigerator in front of my house. Yeah, DM us. I will get you a way to get us a fridge. So are you ready for some questions? I am. Will Da Vinci be on the test? Yeah, and there's not really a class where he shouldn't show up on a yeah. test, considering all the math and science he did. Oh yeah, Da Vinci is going to be on every test. Every test. Okay, if you're ever in doubt about a question, just put down Da Vinci, and you're going to be wrong, but you're less likely to be wrong. Yeah, like, who came up with this mathematical thing? Da Vinci. It's not necessarily... Didn't he do that, like, is it the Vitruvian Man that's called? Yeah, the anatomy drawing. It's anatomy, and it also has to do with, like, proportions yeah. for art. Will the theft of the Mona Lisa be on the test? Yes. Will the fact that pooping French nobility had exclusive access for centuries to the Mona Lisa be on the test? You know, I kind of think so. If we're talking about the history of the Mona Lisa specifically, I think so. If we're talking about France in general, we probably won't talk about their poop history. Which again, schools, teachers, include that stuff. Kids love it. Hell, we're in our 30s and we love it. We talked about a poop log on Christmas. Yeah. Because we're children, basically. Mm-hmm. Poop log. So, will the two-hour wait for a 30-second viewing of the Mona Lisa be on the test? Yes. It's going to be one of those hard things, too, because the teacher wants to encourage kids to go out and experience the art. But I feel like they'd have to put that in there because the kids would not get to experience the art. Yeah. Again, with the Mona Lisa, there are some very high-quality photographs of it that you can see. So, that is the Mona Lisa. Very, very cool. So what is something you learned about Prohibition today? That we poisoned 10,000 people. That's just the number that died. We killed 10,000 people. Yeah, I hate to think how many others had lifelong injuries from that. What did you learn about the Mona Lisa? I learned that we know who it is. Yeah. Like, I heard all those things about how they thought it was a self-portrait of Da Vinci. I had to, like, fight myself on just going into the Da Vinci Code. Which is all bullshit. All of that is bullshit. The only reason I made it through is I was stuck in an eight-hour layover, and it was the only book I had. And unfortunately, I had the illustrated edition, and apparently the regular version has some kind of code in it. The illustrated edition, because the pages are different, does not have that code. And you know how much I love codes. But still, yeah, Da Vinci Code. So stupid. It's like, it's not a self-portrait. And all of, like, the triangles that represent the Trinity or whatever, that's just basic goddamn composition of a fucking painting yeah 
math and art are the same thing. Math and music are the same thing. Also, people who take this shit seriously, Dan Brown himself and said, this is fiction. All of this is fiction. Why are you taking this so seriously about my fictional work? Yeah, it's like a lot of these people who write these historical fiction books are hoping that you will become interested and learn more, but not that you'll take it as fact. Like, I love the Pillars of the Earth series. Again, kids, don't read those till you're 25. I love them. They are about real historical times. I learned a lot from them, but it was stuff that's like, okay, this is when they learned that you need to wash your hands to prevent medical spread or disease spread a little bit. So how did that actually happen? Because it wasn't this one nun who figured it out. I learned so much about one of the world wars. I think it was one just from reading the Pillars of the Earth series. Again, it's a series. Or maybe it wasn't the Pillars of the Earth. That was the other series. Um, So those, uh, oh God, Ken Follett I love Ken Follett. And I know it's like a dirty pleasure for a lot of people. Either you love him or you hate him. I love his books. Those those novels they are cinder blocks. They are dense. They are, I love the audiobooks for that. By reason. cinder blocks, I'm not talking about like the building material cinder blocks. I'm talking about the chunky cat that everyone <laughs> loves, but they weigh about the same as that cat. Unlike the cats in Cats, and we can't tell how much they weigh because they keep changing sizes. So much about that was just wrong. So we don't recommend Cats unless you want to make fun of it with a group of people. If you are like us and you love bad movies, like I would very much love to do a podcast that's just reviewing bad movies, but I know there's a billion out there. Doesn't mm-hmm. have something that will stop me. But I mean, if we, you have a bad movie podcast and you want us to come on, we will watch whatever movie you want us to watch. Oh yeah, we love bad movies. One of our cats is named Zumbi after the movie Zumbies. It's a zoo where the animals turn into zombies. It's amazing. Well, we are on all of the social media, so you should come follow us. We are on the test pod on Facebook, Twitter, and we are on Instagram now. Our website is on thetestpod.com. Please go review us on iTunes. Give us those five stars. It's really helpful. And if you're not a fan and don't plan to listen again, you don't have to leave us a review. It's fine. I also saw that we have a bunch of new followers on Facebook. We are so happy to have you all there. Uh, feel free, comment, engage. We are so excited to start these yeah. conversations. And also, if you listen to us, the best way you can help us is to tell a friend to listen to us. It is so, so helpful. We want to get more people listening to us. So come find us on social media. Find our website on the test pod and all of those places. We are really happy to engage with you. If you ever have a suggestion, we are happy to listen to it and see if it's something that would work for our for what we do. Obviously, we're not going to do anything that's like, tell about how great the KKK is. We might punch you through the internet somehow. I mean, we can talk about... Um, we can talk about We can KKK. talk about the, the KKK and just make them look like the bunch of idiots they are, but that's the best you're going to get out of us. Class, Class dismissed. dismissed.